in James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It's just going to be a short introduction to the book of James. It's probably all we'll have time for. I hope that today will whet your appetite to go and read the book of James for yourself, armed with some information of who James was, why he wrote, and why this book is important in the life of the Christian today. So it's James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It's on page 847 in the thinner church Bible. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I think I should apologise first. This, uh, I've been planning to do this for a long time. I did not know there was going to be a hurricane tomorrow. So potentially I'm hoping and praying that this is not a prophetic sermon, that the trials we're going to be facing will be because of a hurricane. Um, but yeah, let's see. <laughs> so we're in the book of James. And the very first word has James identifying himself. But who is he? In the early church, there are three major Jameses. And the first is called James the Lesser. He is the Lesser James of the three Jameses. Well, he is one of the twelve. And he is the brother of Matthew, the tax collector. And we know him to be the son of Alphaeus, which is mentioned in Mark chapter 2. And that's all we know about him. The second of the three Jameses is the son of Zebedee, the brother of John one half of the sons of thunder. We know a lot more about him, but most importantly for our purposes right now, we know that he's the first martyr from among the twelve, and he died in about 44 AD, about 11 years after Jesus' crucifixion, and about four years before this book was written. The third James is the one the Catholic tradition claims doesn't exist, but earlier church tradition points to him being the son of Mary and Joseph, or the half-brother of Jesus. This James is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, um, which is an old creed that Paul records for us. So I'm just going to read that. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 7. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance and here's that creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles So that last verse talks about the Lord appearing to James after his resurrection. And then James became a believer. This is the same James that would have come to Jesus with Mary and the other brothers and sisters, thinking that Jesus was crazy and trying to pull him from public ministry before. But he meets Jesus after Jesus' resurrection, and he becomes a changed person. And over time, he becomes a prominent figure in the church in Jerusalem. 
It seems like after the martyrdom of the other James, the brother of John, he took a leading position in the church, becoming the leader of the church there after Peter flees uh, Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12. And he's very prominent in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which is when the church decided that the old Jewish laws no longer had authority over Christians and we didn't have to become Jewish to become Christian. This letter is most likely written before that council, so between 44 AD and 48 AD. And we know this because the book deals with stuff that is, would have been dealt with in the council, but no reference to the council of Jerusalem is mentioned. So we're through the first word. We know who James is. James calls himself a servant of God in the next bit. The Greek word for servant is doulos, like the boat. When there were different kinds of slavery in Greece, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And this one has been sort of identified by some people with the kind of slavery that's mentioned in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21. We don't have time to look there, but if you want to look there, that's it, Exodus 21. And it's different from the slavery that William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln would have fought against. It's not racially based, it's debt based. So people would get into debt and to pay off the debt they'd work for the person they owed money to. And in some cases, for various reasons and situations, they chose to stay after they'd paid off the debt working for that person. And so this kind of doulos, from what I've read, is that person who has chosen to stay. And I just wonder, does that describe you today? Could you say, like James, that you are a doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a servant of Christ by choice? God does not want forced service. He wants us to do what he asks because we're acting out of love for him because he first loved us. Many of us, especially those who have been Christians for many years, can get to a place of service for service's sake. We go through the motions with God. We still pray, we read our Bibles, we maybe give to the dinners or help with the dinners downstairs or give to the church collection or go out and evangelise. But it's out of maybe habit, a sense of duty, something we think we have to do to be a good Christian. Last time I spoke here, it was just a short thought from Revelation where God wrote to the church of Ephesus about them leaving their first love and working for the Lord from other motives not the love of God. The love of God should be our motive for working for the Lord. Revelation calls on us to remember that love for God that we had, that initial love we have, and then it calls on us to repent because leaving our first love and doing the work of the kingdom for the wrong motives is described as falling. So we're to repent and then we're to repeat, to do the things we did at first, being filled with that love for God, which we have spent time remembering. Then the rest of verse 1 tells us that James is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel that are dispersed all over the world. This does not mean that the letter of James is not for us, but that it is written with the Jewish Christian audience in mind. So we're through verse 1. Let's read verses 2 to 4 again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So to put what James is saying here another way, you might say, when life gives you lemons, 
make lemonade. That's biblical. Lemons to most of us are bitter and unpleasant, just like the trials of life. However, lemons are also a key ingredient in lemonade, which is a drink that is sweet and refreshing. Throughout the Bible and throughout history, there's story after story of the heroes of the faith going through trials and turning them into victories. That is God's goal for us when we face a trial. The goal is to reach the victory. But what is a trial? What does the Bible mean by trials? Well, trials are difficult things that happen to us. They're external to us, things that we've usually got no hand in creating and no control over to put an end to them. As human beings, we like to be in control of our lives, our environment and our surroundings. We're happiest when we know what's going on and we're happiest when we know we can stop something from happening or we can put in extra efforts to make it go better. But when trial comes to our lives, it shows us that we're not in control and not as in control of the world as we think or we'd like to be. Examples of trials can be the death of a loved one, the unexpected loss of work or finances, the oven breaking in the middle of the dinner, a hurricane people treating us badly, the effects of the sins of other people on us. And when these things happen, we sometimes go into a state of shock because they show us how little we are in, actually in control. But look at the difference between where verse 2 is and then where verse 4 gets to. In verse 2, there are trials of many kinds, and that's the starting point. Living on earth means we will face trials of many kinds. If you haven't yet, don't worry, they're on the way. Starting with trials, but where does it finish? It finishes us with being mature and complete and lacking in nothing. That's the goal of trials. When Ireland was still under British rule, there were many who believed in a free, independent Ireland. These people were often on the move with no home, nowhere to stay, because they didn't want to stay too long in one place or they'd be found and arrested. And so they slept sometimes in hotels, if they were lucky, sometimes in barns, sometimes in the woods, hiding out, rebelling against the crown. And I think we're a bit like that when we're not in Christ, or when we're in Christ, but not in Christ, if you know what I mean. When our lives have not been changed by an encounter with his grace, many of us, after we're saved, need, need a lot more of his grace to take us out of the bushes just as he allowed with Ireland where God took those rebels and made them citizens of a new country and then they began to behave differently. No more sleeping in barns but meetings in Leinster House. No more shooting people from bushes but living in peace. That's what God wants for us. He wants to take us from being these dirty, barn-dwelling rebels and give us a citizenship in a new kingdom, a better kingdom, his kingdom. But how do we get there? James says that part of that road involves trials. We go from rebel to citizen via the road of trial. But how? How do we get from being barn dwellers to heaven citizens? Do we just have to grow through the trial and get to the other end? Of course not. Every trial we face has an effect on us. People make that rhyming distinction. You either become better or bitter. Trials send us one of two ways, into the better or into the bitter. And our reaction to what happens is the difference. If we have a fatalistic attitude, we say things like, oh, life's just like this, it's always bad, bad things always happen to me, I'm a good person, this shouldn't happen to me. If those are our attitudes through the trial, we may come out the other end 
but the only thing we will have learned is that we like to dwell in barns. There's no growth there. The trial that came to help us per- learn perseverance and to help, us, to help bring us to maturity, we've only allowed it to make us more bitter. So how do we face a trial and become better? Well, James says four things, but we're only going to look at two of them. The first is in verse 2, and it's consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. Are you sure, James? Paul says something similar, doesn't he, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This sounds like a mad thing to say. And let me be clear, when someone dies, God is not telling you to rejoice in their death. When someone's ill or in pain, God is not telling you to rejoice in their pain. God is not a sadist. He's not insane. God is telling you to rejoice or to consider our circumstances pure joy because of him. It may seem like a subtle difference, but it's actually really big. See, how could you consider it pure joy unless you serve a God who is in control, who is omnipotent and omniscient? It means he's all-powerful and all-knowing. If God were not all-powerful, we could have no faith that he will work it out for our good in the end. If God is not all-knowing, then how does he know? How can he promise that there is good, that there is maturity, and that there is completion at the end of a trial? He couldn't. But because he is all-powerful and all-knowing, and because he doesn't change, we stand on a firm foundation, even if it looks like there's an earthquake all around us. But why should we count it all joy? Warren Wearsby says, Outlook determines attitude, and attitude determines action. Considering something pure joy is about where we place our value. If our value is in something like comfort, then trials will be an inconvenience and we will hate them and we'll miss out on the opportunities that God is presenting to us for growth. (coughs) However, if we value our relationship with God over our own comfort, then we can see trials as opportunities to become more Christ-like to refine our character, to deepen our dependence on the goodness of God, and we can count it joy because we are found in him and he is at work in us. And to finish that thought from Wearsby, he says, so when trials come, immediately give thanks to the Lord and adopt a joyful attitude. Do not pretend, do not try self-hypnosis, simply look at the trials through the eyes of faith. Outlook determines outcome. To end with joy, begin with joy. So in verse 3, James continues, and the second thing he says about getting to a place of victory, becoming better and not bitter as we face trials, is that we are to know. Know what? We are to know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So we're to consider it joy that trials come because God, who is in control, is working in our lives, and we are to know. We're to know that the purpose of these trials is to test our faith, and that faith is tested to produce perseverance. So we come to James 1, verse 4. So let's read that again. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So if we consider trials joy because they are a sign of God's work in our lives, if we know that these trials are given to test our faith, and if testing our faith brings perseverance, then what is the point? Perseverance finishes its work that we may be mature and complete in God 
and lacking in nothing. So working backwards, the purpose of trials is our maturity and completion in God. That's the big picture. Often when we're in the middle of a hard time, we can't see the forest from the trees. There it is. James tells us the forest, the end result of our trials, is that if we consider them joy, if we know that they're for the testing of our faith and allow them to produce perseverance in that faith within us, the result is our maturity and our completion in Christ. Suddenly something that seems so bad doesn't seem so bad at all. The purpose is our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ. That song we sang was be a good response song to this. And notice how little we have to do in our trials to be brought to this place of maturity. Really all God is asking us to do is to trust him and in his goodness through it. This verse, James 1 verse 4, is kind of the theme verse for the whole book. So what's the theme of James? It's maturity in Christ. We don't know if Galatians or James were written first, but we know that Paul has been teaching about the grace of God for some time, and James is maybe concerned. Some commentators say that Because of the teaching of the grace of God, people have been saying, oh, I can do anything because God's grace will cover me. It was being abused by some members. So James wrote this letter to remind us that though we completely affirm grace alone as the means to salvation or being saved from sin, as the means to justification being counted righteous by God and so no longer under judgment or condemnation, the means to sanctification which is being changed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus and doing as he would do, and our glorification, which we sang about, that day we are perfected in Christ, and every day thereafter. All of those are by grace alone. But we work in partnership with God, allowing him to transform us by his grace, by our trust and our faith in him. In the context that we're looking at today through trials, people in the church may have been acting as if they could react any way they wanted to when the trials came. Some were being bitter, maybe angry, maybe fatalistic and thinking that there's nothing they can do and becoming hopeless. They may have even said in their reactions, which would have been the wrong ones to have, that it didn't matter because the grace of God would sort them out anyway. James sets out to correct this. He never denies that it's God's grace that brings us through our trials. Please note that. But in reality, he doesn't give us a lot of work to do either. Instead, he points out that throughout our trials... We cannot have any attitude we want, but we should consider it joy because we are found in him and we can trust in him. Knowing that these trials are a test of our faith and that this test has the goal of producing perseverance in us. And that perseverance, that continuing in the faith, that trusting that we have in God and that pure joy brings us to maturity in Christ. Christian, this is so important. One of the biggest problems with the church today is the lack of maturity we have in our faith. James is the perfect book to read to learn about being mature as a Christian. Of course, one of the key ideas in James you've probably heard before, it's in James chapter 1 as well, but it's verse 22. And though we haven't gotten there yet, we can just jump ahead for a second. So you just look a little bit further down the page to verse 22. It says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just be hearers of the word of God, but be doers also. We are very good as a generation of Christians at being hearers of the word. We come and listen to sermons about considering it all joy when the trials come. But in those times our faith is is actually tested, how are we reacting? 
Are we counting it all joy? Do we see the purpose of trials in our lives and persevere through them? Are we growing towards Christ-likeness and maturity in our faith? Christian, it's so important to note that when the word says not to be a hearer only, but a doer also, that it is not looking for more loveless actions, loveless good works, loveless Bible reading, loveless service. The call here isn't to do more. The call is to trust more. And as a result of trusting, doing more. Remember what Jesus said to the Ephesian church in Revelation that I mentioned earlier. They'd left their first love. They were doing great works. They were reading the Bible. They were praying. They were feeding the sick or visiting the sick and feeding the homeless. Maybe feeding the sick is not a good idea. And all the rest of it. But they did not love God and Jesus called them to repent of that. Repent of doing all the good that they were doing out of a motive that was without love for him. So this isn't a a call to more works, to do more things. It's a call to see how much God loves you, to desire to be like him. And then from that flows obedience as we count trials pure joy because we have a God who is mighty and sovereign and who is working in us. I said that James gives us four things to turn trials into victories, to stop to, to stop being barn dwellers and to become citizens. The first two are to consider and to know. There are two more in the next few verses. The section runs, I think, to verse 12. So read ahead. Find out what else J- James says to take us from trial to victory. The time to think about how you're going to deal with trials isn't when you're in the middle of one. It's today. Plan ahead. Know the God you can trust in the good times and the bad times before the bad times come. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your love for us, for who you are, for how you have brought us into this kingdom by your grace, Lord. God, I pray now, if we are not in trials, Lord, that you would help us to prepare for them because they will come. That you would help us to set our minds towards you, to trust in your goodness, to have your goodness as the firm foundation of our lives, that we would look to you when the trials come, that we could consider it pure joy, and that we could know that those trials are coming to produce perseverance, to bring us to maturity and completion, God. Lord, if we're in a trial right now, I pray that we'd be able to see that trial through the lens of faith. And God, I pray as well for tomorrow, that this hurricane that's coming will not cause too much damage, Lord, and that you would just protect each and every one of us. In your name we pray. Amen.